0: Welcome to On The Square, a special podcast brought to you by Sapelo Square in collaboration with The Maidan. I am Dr. Saad abdul Khabir, senior editor of Sapelo Square and curator-producer of this podcast where every month we get on the square and into some real talk about
1: race and Islam in the Americas.
0: as Peace be unto you. I am Zahir Ali, Sapelo Square's history editor. This past year, as part of Black History Month, Sapelo Square explored the Muslim collection at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of African American History and Culture with a different object each day that helped tell the rich histories of Muslims of African descent in the United States. On this episode of On the Square, we are going to dive into the stories behind some of those objects and talk about the importance of Black Muslim material culture. And to help us do that, we are joined by Talani Salahuddin, the Museum Specialist in Language and Literature at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. In addition to collecting literary objects, she has acquired objects reflecting the religious diversity of African American communities. Some of these objects are on display in Foundations of Faith in the museum's Making a Way Out of No Way gallery, which explores religion as a strategy of survival and progress. Talani, welcome to On the Square, and thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, uh, Zaire. It's a pleasure to be here with you today.
0: Let's start by, if you can, just tell us about the mission of the National Museum of African American History and Culture and the role of Muslim objects in that mission.
1: As it relates to religion, the museum wanted to show the diversity of African-American religious traditions and practices. So that meant that we had to, in addition to the Black church and to denominations associated with Christianity, we had to also include non-Christian practices and traditions. And so we definitely include the, the Muslim experience, the Black Jewish experience, As well as a little bit about uh, Buddhism as well and traditional African religious practices and so to show that diversity, you know we collected about 166 uh, Muslim objects and still are in the process of collecting uh, religious artifacts.
0: For people who may not know, what do we mean when we speak of material culture? What kind of stories can an object tell us?
1: Material culture simply refers to the objects we use in our everyday lives. They are materials that are produced by human beings and used by human beings. If human society were to disappear, these objects would disappear. So they are human produced and used. And they reflect self-identity and self-expression, the way we express ourselves. So they might include tools of the trade. They might include domestic items. And, And let me go back. When I say tools of the trade, I'll give some concrete examples. Mechanical tools, signage, weapons even. Medical implements. Those are examples of tools of the trade. And domestic items things that we use around the home cooking uh, utensils things that we use to beautify our home vases and bowls and and paintings things of that nature all considered material culture and of course the things that we wear our garments jewelry these are, are all All a part of our identity and self expression.
0: You collected, and the museum collected over 100 objects for the inaugural collection relating to Muslim history and culture. How did you go about identifying and locating the objects that you collected?
1: Well, we start by, as I referenced in the beginning, thinking about or operating from the framework of diversity, showing that ideologically, And theologically, African-Americans have historically been diverse, not of one mind at all. And that's a beautiful thing. And so we begin with working within that particular framework. We think about what are the objects associated with Islam? What are the objects associated with Jews? What are the objects associated with Buddhism? And then we reach out to individual practitioners of these various faiths. And also we reach out to, of course, Uh, religious organizations and religious institutions, and sometimes to other museums as well uh, that house these things and may want to, to lend them so, that yeah, that's how we go about collecting the objects, identifying how we want to use them, and then reaching out to the individuals and institutions where we can find them.
0: As I said, we were honored to feature some of those objects as part of a Black History Month special on Sapelo Square. And I wanted to see if we can talk about some of the stories behind the objects. If you know, We'll post a link on our site to the, the objects, and we provide some historical context I'm interested in the the human stories behind collecting these objects. So I have some favorites, and I know you have some favorites too. One of them that stood out to me was an egg carton from Muslim Farms. And I wonder if you can talk to us about you know, you just look at it. It's a, it's an egg carton. It's labeled Muslim Farms. And it, of course, it's just remarkable that someone saved an egg carton from way back when. But can you tell us a, about the story of this egg carton when you first saw it or heard about it? And, and what was the story in, in it uh, becoming part of the collection?
1: When I decided to collect from former members of the Nation of Islam, I reached out to an associate of mine who happened to be the granddaughter of Elijah Muhammad. And so she really helped to introduce me to a network of potential donors, primarily in Chicago and in California and in New Jersey and New York. And so I traveled to all of those places as far north as Fresno, California, as well as L.A. The donor of the egg carton lived in Chicago. So I went to her home and I saw all these things, garments and things associated with the nation. And then I saw this egg carton and some other things associated with the economic development program of the Nation of Islam. And I said, wow, And she saved an egg carton. And so the first thing I did was, you know, to look at the condition of it. Is this something I can actually take back to the museum? And so I did. And it worked out perfectly well because we ended up, doing a 3D imaging of the carton. And you can go into, I think it's on the second floor, there's a a display where you can actually see the carton and it's being rotated. And you can see all sides of it. So it's fully three-dimensional. And that means that we don't have to Put it out on the floor for people to see so it doesn't have to be handled because of course the more you handle an object the more you contribute to its decay and so you can see everything uh, equally as well as if you were viewing the actual object and so that particular egg carton was so important to me because it represents the entrepreneurial spirit of the members of the nation of islam which uh, Elijah Muhammad and his wife, Sister Claire Muhammad, promoted it. It represents their uh, economic development plan. As we know, the nation-owned farmland in Michigan, and they raised chickens that produced the eggs that they distributed to the markets. And these were stores that they owned. Uh, they were the eggs were delivered to these stores by in trucks, uh, a fleet of trucks that they owned. And we're talking about. Cities throughout the United States, major urban centers um, where these stores were located and where the eggs were distributed, and so again that speaks to the the self reliance that the Nation of Islam promoted.
0: The Nation were one of the pioneers of what we would now call the food sovereignty movement or the food justice movement, addressing what we now call food deserts, right? The yes. the, the lack of access to healthy. And natural food in certain communities. And, and, and they also pioneered access to muslim food to lawful muslim food they didn't as you said they didn't they had farms they had chickens they had beef the sort of halal food that mm-hmm. muslims were required to eat so it's quite remarkable and and this egg carton is like 50 years old right, right um right mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. how was it kept so that by the time you saw it it was in such good shape
1: she just had it inside a plastic bag now i'm not sure where that was right. maybe probably in the basement with the other items that she brought up. Um, but she did have it in a, in a plastic bag. So I guess that helped. And the fact that it probably was not handled yeah. much as well. And, and perhaps in a cooler climate in the basement, that helped as well. Mm-hmm. But going back to something you, sa- you had said, what just want to add to it. You know, the Nation of Islam were pioneers in the importation of millions of pounds of whiting fish. And it's, it addressed that issue of the food desert that you were talking about, because in the urban centers, a lot of people were not able to get fresh fish. And so they um, they satisfied that need through their international imports uh, program.
0: Yeah. And we have one of the things, the other objects we featured from the museum's collection was a sign, I think, yes. um, of the international trade uh, division of the Nation of Islam. Another object that stood out to me was a tape recorder used by Malcolm X at Mosque Number no. 7 in New York. And again, looking at this, there's nothing that says on its own that there is something about this object that says Muslim history. Mm-hmm. But knowing the context of the object, that this was used by Malcolm X, it looks like a reel-to-reel recorder, right? So this is not mm-hmm. for, for people listening don't even know what an audio cassette
1: is. Right. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Um, So this is before audio cassettes. This is reel-to-reel tapes. I'm interested in the story behind that object.
1: My colleague collected that particular tape recorder. I think that one was not a donation. It was a purchase from a a man who lived in New Jersey, I believe He, he was from there. We use it to tell the story of Malcolm X as the highly charismatic uh, spokesperson for the Nation of Islam and how after he was uh, released from prison in 1952, he really helped through his public presentations. uh, He really helped to increase the membership of the nation, which at that time was only about 400 members, but he increased it to over 400,000 members just because people would come out and they would listen to him on the streets and, and the word spread very, very quickly. This man was out here speaking and just making so much sense. And, and his, his words were resonating with African-Americans throughout all the cities. He was based uh, in Harlem at the time. So this particular recorder came from Mosque Number no. 7 in Harlem.
0: No one can deny his skill as an organizer and certainly his talents as an orator. And also his instinct of the importance of media, right? Mm-hmm. Malcolm helped yes. to found the Muhammad Speaks newspaper. So the importance of media in the growth of the nation is, is an important story. And the other thing that I kind of was struck by with the tape recorder is how well and how much the nation documented itself, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Through
0: the ministers in the Nation of Islam, well, certainly Malcolm recorded all of his speeches and would send them to Chicago for review. Elijah Muhammad Mm -hmm. would review the lectures that his ministers were giving and this was a sort of quality control and message alignment making oh, sure that, <laughs> making sure that the ministers were on <laughs> were on the same page as on him on
1: the same page um, one, one unified message that's right that's right and,
0: but what and what comes out of that of course is this really rich wealth of archival the, some of this stuff is still in people's basements, in people's garages, right? But but it mm-hmm. exists. So this level of documentation, you know, this is mm-hmm. is, is incredible um mm-hmm. and, and important for the history.
1: Yeah. And you know, and we also have an issue, it was fairly short lived, but Messenger magazine, I believe, was started by Malcolm as well.
0: Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Another object, which we weren't able to feature because there wasn't a a good enough high resolution image, but there is an oral history on the museum's website, which we will link to. We're going to play a small excerpt of it in this episode. And it's an oral history with Amir Muhammad, who was the granddaughter of Elijah Muhammad and Clara Muhammad. And she talks about an object that is part of the museum's collection that is a pendant that Clara Muhammad wore. Can you tell us a little bit about that object and why why it was important to include that in the collection?
1: Yes, this was a a pendant, a platinum pendant that um, Elijah Muhammad had commissioned someone to design for his wife. And he presented it to her in the 50s and she wore it around her neck uh, all of her life. And right before she passed away, though, uh, when she became ill, she passed it on to her granddaughter, Amira. Amira has kept it all of this time, and uh, it was very difficult for her to part with it. But she understood the importance of having it there. It, For her, it symbolized the love between her grandparents. There's a lot of controversy surrounding you know, their relationship certain liaisons that Elijah Muhammad had with other females, Um, but she saw, you know, something totally different, and she wanted that story to come to the forefront. She said that they had a very symbiotic uh, relationship. Um, You know, she, little known to a lot of people, she was the one who introduced Elijah Muhammad to the nation. Of Islam. Well, at the time she had introduced him to Farad, Farad Muhammad, who was the founder of the Nation of Islam. She went to hear him speak on a number of occasions, and then she invited her husband uh, to come. And then he ultimately became a leader in the Nation of Islam. And she was a leader herself within the nation in the educational arena. She began to establish what became known as the Sister Claire Muhammad schools, and they grew and were formed in every urban center uh, across the United States, and many of them are still in existence today. And uh, she endured uh, a lot of challenges from the authorities because they were keeping the children out of the public school system and uh, educating them at first in their homes. They had these small schools in their home, comparable to what we know now as the homeschooling movement. <laughs> so they were doing that, you know, way back in, in the late 40s and 50s. And so they had this relationship that was very, I would say, synergetic. Uh, the synergy between the two of them was phenomenal. And so they were able to do their work and to express love for one another. And so Amira wanted that to
2: be known.
0: We're gonna play a clip from her oral history where she talks about that, and then we're gonna come back.
2: That pendant was my grandfather's love offering to my grandmother for her tireless efforts in the beginning early infancy stages of the Nation of Islam, when they traveled between Detroit and Chicago. There came a time when they when they moved to Chicago, settled in Chicago, that my grandmother didn't want her children and the members' children to be in the public school anymore. She thought they could do a better job. She took her children out of the school despite the Chicago police and Um, school system that said you can't do that so she was homeschooling when before the name homeschooling probably existed and she was almost arrested and she was hauled into court for it and she refused to put her kids in public school and through that effort it just grew and grew and for myself I became I, I went through with the exception of eighth grade The Sister Clara Muhammad School, at one point it was called the University of Islam, and it later changed to Sister Clara Muhammad School, and those schools are still in existence to this day.
0: The other thing that I really like about having this object in the collection is that so much of the histories of, you know, so much of our histories, period, but so much certainly of Muslim, Black Muslim histories in the United States are told around the stories of men, right? Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali. We often don't get the experiences of women represented in these histories. And as you pointed out, Clara Muhammad played such a crucial role in the development of the nation of Islam. So it's really, I'm really happy to see that that story is represented. And certainly she wasn't the only woman, right, to have significantly shaped the development of Islam in the United States in in the Black community. Mm-hmm. There's so many other objects that we could get into. And we encourage people to, again, we'll post a link where they can see some of the objects. But I wonder, do you go into this with us in mind, here are the kinds of objects we want. And then you're you're surprised by what you're presented with. Certainly there are religious, what we would consider more explicitly religious artifacts that are part of this collection. There are Qurans, there are uh, prayer rugs, there are prayer beads. Are there other kinds of objects you would like to see that maybe we haven't been able to talk about or feature?
1: You know, I would like to see more on uh, Muslims in military service, uh, because they were present there, but we don't have, uh, to my knowledge, anything associated with that. So objects, military objects that belonged to Muslims who served. Also, I keep running across, you know, the Ahmadiyya Ak- movement. There's a not, we don't have anything on Ahmadiyya Ak- Ak- movement, and from my understanding, they were quite foundational in um, helping to promote the uh, presence of Islam in the Western world.
0: There are drumsticks by Art Blakey, who, you know, and they're drumsticks that he used in the 80s, yes. I think. Yes. And I mm-hmm. we featured it and kind of used that as a way to, like, right. backdoor right. the story of the <laughs> Afadi, because a lot of the, in the 1950s, I think Ebony Magazine ran an article on jazz artists who were embracing yes. Islam, and a good exactly. number of them came out of the or came through the ahmadi movement and so yes, yeah, that's, yes that's definitely mm-hmm. an important part of the story yes um, and
1: some of those artists um are featured in the musical crossroads gallery in some form or another right um you had mentioned already the band leader and uh jazz drummer art blakey and the pianist ahmed jamal and, yes the saxophonist Yusuf Latif,
0: yes, yes. Uh,
1: they were all there, the pianist McCoy Tyner, as well,
0: right, yeah. right, so good num- we, a good number of them yeah, and what's so what's so interesting is that some aspects of black Muslim history is sort of invisible unless you know right it's mm-hmm, it, it's not right. legible for people who don't know, like if you don't know the histories of that, you'll just be like, Oh, okay. You know, like there was, I think we featured a flyer for a last poet's concert and the flyer was from the Dar islam right? Like it was, but, but if you didn't Mm -hmm. know what it was, it it said like Jamaat celebration. And if you didn't know what that was, you'd be like, Oh, okay. And so some of this is so it's there in almost hidden in plain sight. Right. Um, that, that has to be explicitly mentioned. The community that I think without doubt that has had the most influence as certainly in the 20th century revival of Islam in the African-American community is the Nation of Islam. The Nation of Islam and its lineage, whether the community of Imam Muhammad or Minister Safar Khan, are well represented in the collection. And I think you've mentioned that you'd like to see stories of the Ahmadi and stories of, of those serving in the military. Are there other kinds of stories that you hope that we would get to feature?
1: I just think those two uh, quickly come to mind.
0: For you, why would it be important having those who served in the military? Why would that? Why would those stories be important to you?
1: They're important because when you think back to the fact that twenty to thirty percent of the Africans, enslaved Africans, who came here, were Muslims, and we're talking about during the fifteen hundreds, they began coming to what became known as the United States, and during all of those centuries. They made contributions to civilization, to the civilization, in almost every area of life. Um, And so military are not excluded. Um, And so that's just an area that we we don't have. And it also uh, addresses the issue, you know, a lot of times the general perception is that Muslims are uh, anti-America, but to have served in the military really shows the ultimate, I think, in patriotism, the willingness to be able to sacrifice your life, you know, for the nation in which you live, uh, certainly shows that you are, you see yourself not as separate, uh, but as an integral part of that. And of course, there were Muslims who, you know, we have the Muhammad Ali story, which shows that there were Muslims who took a stand against serving in the military. And we understand that role as well, because Many of the wars, particularly the one that Muhammad Ali refused to support, these were unjust wars. You know, uh, we weren't always justified in our actions uh, in other countries. And so some Muslims took a stand against it, which is very understandable as well. The fact that serving in the military shows the patriotism, how we view ourselves uh within you know the the borders of the the United States i think that can be addressed through objects military objects
0: i think you make a really good point about making sure that we all understand the diversity within yes the the black muslim communities in terms of the political ideologies their re- how people understand their relationship to the United States how people understand their relationship to their country, how people define patriotism, right? Mm
1: -hmm, You know, for
0: some people, for example, what Muhammad Ali did was was anti-American. And to others, it was the ultimate expression of patriotism, right? Mm
1: -hmm, That's right. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. so
0: because you might love your country so much, you want to make sure it doesn't go down a, a path that you think is not good, right? And that, that's good. part of patriotism as patriotism well. Patriotism as well. That's yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think I think that's a really good point for people to understand. So are these objects all on display or are they rotating? How does the museum decide when and how long to put objects on display?
1: Right. The 166 objects I mentioned are part of our inaugural exhibition, so they are on permanent display and As we collect more objects, there's potential for some of those objects to be rotated out and new ones rotated in. Uh, But generally, they have to fit the same theme that's there. And if you don't see the objects on display, you know, you can always come to the website to do a search of the collection. You just click right on search the collection. And, you know, you can do a search by name, by title, by object. So that's, that's another way as well. So the museum has recently reopened, as many of our listeners know. And so, yeah, you can come to the museum and see, as you mentioned earlier, most of the objects associated with Muslims are in the Making a Way Out of No Way gallery on the third floor. We also have some um, religious, some Muslim artifacts on the, in the segregation gallery which is on the lower level of the museums.
0: I was fortunate to come to the museum in 2016. I think there was like a preview before it was open to the public. And that's really where I got the idea to do this, theme of muslim stories in the museum because i starting with the story of enslaved people i started seeing obviously as you've mentioned the story of some muslims who were enslaved and i was like oh i I wonder how muslims show up in this in the museum because you know i wasn't i wasn't sure how it would show up um Mm -hmm. i think i expected malcolm x and muhammad ali to show up in some way. So I started just logging all of the different things. And I was just like, wow, there's a whole thread. There's a whole story running through. You know, and I'm sure people could do that with the Christian story and the Jewish story and the, the nationalist story and the integrationist story. Like there are all of these multiple thematic histories cuz you can't like you can't exhaust i couldn't exhaust the museum in that mm-hmm. i think we had 4 hours uh for the pre mm-hmm. the preview and like you can't exhaust it in one day but I was just like, you know, it's it's almost like, oh, like let's do the the quote unquote Muslim tour of the museum. Let's do the, you oh know, the God. political tour of the museum. You'd always you get a different experience each time. And so I'm so excited the museum has reopened to the public, and and I hope that people who are listening who are able to schedule a visit to come to D.C. Make sure this is on your list because it it's so powerful. Also, I think this may be. Of all of the Smithsonian museums and 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 I think of all of the national museums that I've been to, history museums, this collection may be the most significant in terms of content and amount and prominence of Muslim American history. And that it is in the National Museum of African American History and Culture tells us something about the significance of the histories of African American Muslims and the significance to the religious story of America and the Muslim story of America. And so I'm just so elated that these objects are there. What advice would you have for people who are, you know, maybe they can't donate something to the museum, but are interested in preserving their family histories we opened the conversation talking about what material Mm -hmm. culture was what what kind of objects should people think about saving i think there are some things that people automatically think about like photographs and maybe Mm -hmm. correspondence but when you're looking at you know like an egg carton (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, <Right. laughs> or an old tape recorder. What yes. what advice would you have for people mm-hmm. who are who want to preserve their family histories?
1: Yeah, I would tell them to think about saving those objects that their family members used in their everyday lives, in their work. You know, they all went to work in their homes. They were at home. What kinds of things did you see or did you did other family members tell you about that were recurring uh, in terms of their usage, you know, among a certain family member, you know, Aunt Betty was always in there ironing, you know, she was always, you know, so where is that iron that Aunt Betty used to use, you know, or, you know, my grandfather, I think about him, he, I remember him, he, he died when I was very young, but I remember him always smoking a pipe and every picture of grandpa there, you know, it's him smoking this pipe you know, whatever became of that pipe. Save things that can be personal effects that become kind of signatures for, you know, a particular family member um, as well. Briefcases, suitcases. You know, I have a suitcase, for example, that I brought with me when I left home at 17 years old. Little lady, Baltimore suitcases, red, you know. And for years, it just went with me wherever I moved. (laughs) And and it actually made a trip with me my first time going to Africa. So when the suitcase began to get a little fragile, normally, had I not been in this business of museum work, oh, I would have tossed it. But now I keep it for my children and my grandchildren, so that they, they will know a little bit about my my journey that this little red Lady Baltimore suitcase represents. So it's things like that, of course, as we mentioned, the necklace jewelry is another good one. This is a ring, you know, that my Uncle Bill always wore, or maybe a piece of jewelry associated with his, his involvement with the Masons or some other group that he was very active in. Uniforms, those were the Masons, for example, had certain items, uniform items aprons and jackets and hats and um, military service uniforms uh, as well. So, so yes, things that certain family members wore often and that came to be associated with their personalities and what they like to do in life.
0: I loved hearing the story of your suitcase, because um, yeah. in fact, I was—I was, <laughs> was going to ask you what object would you, if you had to choose one uh-huh. object, what object would you say that kind of helps tell your story? Mm-hmm. That's such a—I I hope that people who are listening begin, you know, looking around at the sort of maybe mundane things and start with some intentionality, thinking about what those objects might tell other people about them. And um, Mm -hmm. that's such a great way to, to think about that.
1: And of course, you want to, you definitely want to interview, as you're doing here, and as you're so skilled in doing, interview your family members, interview them, you know, while they are still you know relatively young and when I say young I mean in years, their 60s and 70s where their thoughts and memories are very clear and they're very coherent and, and and that doesn't mean that in their 80s and 90s they can't be as well. So anywhere you know from 60 to 120 you know, um, interview your family members and listen to their stories. ask them questions about their, family life, what it was like for them growing up. Ask them about their educational experiences, their primary, secondary, high, high school and higher educational experience. Ask them about their career paths or the labor that they did if they didn't have full-blown uh, careers as we generally uh, think of them. But ask them you know, about the kind of work they did to support themselves and their families. And then go from there and just listen, listen well as they talk, you know, certain things will come forward that are very significant to them that you don't know about. So be a very good listener and don't hesitate to do follow-up questions. You may start with a general outline of questions that you want, um, but as they're talking and you're listening, there may be some other questions that pop up uh, in your mind that you want. Them to address.
0: Well, you, you just gave folks a, a beautiful crash course in oral history. There you go. Yeah. And you know, my experience with doing oral histories, and this comes back to the importance of material culture. Sometimes those objects really help people tell those stories, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I sometimes ask people to have like a photo album with them during the the interview process, and and people will point at an image and and it'll bring them back into the story. It's like, oh, this was when we went on this trip, or this was when this thing happened, or we had this family gathering and and similarly you know with the other objects right so it's so important to to have as much as we can get the stories that accompany these objects because you know that's that's what gives these that's what makes a an egg carton more than an egg carton right mm-hmm. it's the story right. that mm-hmm. accompanies it and that's what makes the difference between somebody's raggedy suitcase and your raggedy suitcase, your suitcase. right exactly. um, is is the story and so the mm-hmm. the power of of storytelling and story listening in this is so so critical to preserving and passing on um, yes. culture and heritage. Mm-hmm.
1: And I wrote about what what you're talking about uh, here is something I had written about for the collections a scholarly journal for museum and archive professionals. Talked about how we look at objects. You know, you can look at a museum object as a kind of self-enclosed entity, what it's made of, how it functions, and things of that nature. But there's a point at which you move beyond the object itself and you tie it to events, you tie it to people, uh, you tie it to places, and that's where it gets this added value. And so that's primarily what we do um, at the museum. We move beyond the object itself, beyond its its material what it's made of what it does you know to, to tell those stories and that's what makes you know the museum interesting people love stories you know they they um, they love to hear about uh, people's lives and then find certain things that resonates with them in their own life so yeah that's what we do and er- and earlier on you said something else that I wanted to follow up on you talked about when you came to the museum how it- you could see this thread, you know, running through the museum. And that is all very deliberate. So I'm glad that you were able to pick up on that. You know, we start this process by writing a script and the script begins with a very centralized theme. You know, it's not this thought here, that thought there, this thought over here, but it's a very centralized theme. And then there are sub-themes and as we develop those sub themes, we ask ourselves, you know, what are the useful uh, photographs or graphic images or um, quotes? And of course, three-dimensional objects that we can use to support the broader theme as well as the sub themes. And so that's pretty much how you know, an exhibition begins and then comes into creation.
0: I love hearing about that process and I think our listeners will too. One of the things that I really appreciated was that the story of Muslims is not siloed in any one corner of the museum, but it's throughout, which is very much what the reality is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Very much integrated into the experience of black people throughout American history. It's Mm -hmm. not like, oh, here's the little Muslim story. Now we can move on, but it's rather, it's woven through quite seamlessly and, and quite effectively. So I'm really happy to hear how that came together We've given folks a crash course on like collections, on oral history, on museum (laughs) studies, which is beautiful. So we're we're going to wrap up, but before we go, we like to ask all of our guests, what is your Black Muslim theme song? If there was a song that you could point to that you think of when you think of Black Muslim history and culture, what would that song be?
1: Oh, that's a very good question. I like that you had mentioned a lot of the jazz musicians earlier who brought some very you know positive music to not just the African-American community, but to the United States uh, and to the world. Very positive, uplifting uh, music. And so I think about this song that was released in 1976, arranged by Quincy Jones on his album, I Heard That. And it's, what good is a song? And I love the, the refrain, which says what good is a song if it can't inspire, if it has no message to bring? If a song cannot send you higher and higher, then it's not good enough to sing. And so, yeah, I love that message because Muslims, I know, try to bring forth and share with the world um, music that uh, takes us higher. And so we listen to the message, and we're inspired uh, to do better, to be better, to be our best selves.
0: Well, thank you so much, Talani, for joining us on this episode. Thank you for, for tuning in to this episode of On The Square, Real Talk on Race and Islam in the Americas, a special podcast series brought to you by Sapelo Square and The Maidan. Thank you again, Talani, for joining us
1: uh you're most welcome always great to be with
0: you you can find more information about what we discussed including links and more by visiting sapolosquare.com forward slash on the square or themaidan.com forward slash podcast our theme music is provided by fanatic on beats and again i am Zahir ali history editor at Sapalo square signing off on this episode on the square assalamualaikum